You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm going to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, words that are very familiar to the Advent congregation. Like many of you, we've kind of, uh, we've just gone through a family reunion. Um, Our older son and his family from Seattle and our middle son and his wife from Costa Rica, and then our daughter and her family from San Diego. It's a rare opportunity to get all three families together, uh, and they overlap for four or five days. So two Sundays ago, we had church service in our living room. We had four grandkids, uh, pretty young, and just the logistics of car seats meant that it would have had to take two or three cars to get here. So we had, uh, we had worship in our living room, focused on the parables, sang psalms and hymns, and uh, had a great time. Uh, the next Saturday, only Kennerly and her family were still with us, and Micah, who's three and a half, said, Granddad, are we going to go to real church next Sunday? <laughs> and so Patrick and, and Mike and me were here last week. Beginning reading in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord God, in these few moments together, in your word, and gratitude for the worship that we've just come from, for many of us, we ask that you would be very present to us in this time, through your word, in your spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of the Son. Amen. What does it mean to live under uh, that easy yoke that Jesus talks about? What does it mean to learn from him? Uh, and that he's gentle and humble in heart. And in so doing, we'll find rest for our souls. Well, I believe if we turn a few chapters back, we really have the sum and substance Jesus gives to us in a fairly straightforward and short sermon that covers something of the scope of the Christian life in the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is a beautiful example of sort of the um, compressed, composite version of the scope of the Christian life, what it looks like, what it looks like in terms of character, what it looks like in terms of uh, the social ethic of the Christian, what it looks like in terms of the deep spirituality of the Christian, what it looks like in terms of ambition and vision, And all of that, I think, is contained in what really takes 12 to 15 minutes to read, the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the next few weeks, I'd like to just explore this. And 
I'm doing it from a different angle. This, I'm trying it out on you. Usually, I think most of the material I present here at the Advent has been sort of tried and true, and I've worked through it. Uh, I've oftentimes preached through it. But this is different. I'm working on this right now. And I'm trying to work on it from the standpoint of how the Sermon on the Mount teaches us in the secular age. A very different context than its first horizon when Jesus preached it. How are we different? Now, we saw an illustration just now in the worship service of a great difference that has come about in the 20th century, ever since basically the 1960s, through the sexual revolution. We have moved from a covenantal view of sexuality to a consensual view of sexuality. Now what stands approved is whether you have two consenting adults. We've moved away from a kind of transcendent, covenantal sense to a very imminent, individualistic sense. And that has had a radical impact on our culture and our way of looking at life. So my concern is, how does the Sermon on the Mount speak to our culture? Now, I'd have this premise, and I think you'd all agree with me on this, is that wherever the Sermon on the Mount, in whatever culture, at whatever time, has been preached and taught, it is countercultural. It's always been countercultural. It always runs against the grain of the current popular culture. And so looking at it this way is something that, uh, for example, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has seven prohibitions, has seven ways of setting up the law of God. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And in that, he works out the visible social righteousness that belongs to the Christian, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity. Now, what's interesting today is you've heard it said, and what is quoted? Jesus quotes the law. And he sets up a contrast between the religion of the law and the heart righteousness of faith and commitment to God. Now, there's all sorts of varieties of you have heard it said. It's not just you've heard it said the law. Your peers have said something. The culture has said something. Your profession has said something. The tribe that you belong to has said something. You have heard it said has a whole litany of sayings. And so how does the Sermon on the Mount speak into that litany of sayings? in a way that penetrates and sets up the contrast of what it is to really live for Christ. There's a lot of favorite verses that we, I think we all designate as kind of favorite verses. And here the Sermon on the Mount, I think, answers that. Not only is it what it means to live under the easy yoke, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Well, how do you love the Lord your God? The Sermon on the Mount fleshes that out. It embodies that truth. We speak of going and making disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
teaching them. Well, the Sermon on the Mount kind of fleshes that out, works that out. What is taught? What is taught about character? What is taught about ethics? What is taught about spirituality? What are the imperatives that we as Christians are under? I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you present yourself as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Well, here, the Sermon on the Mount gives us, in sort of an encapsulated form, what it is that's true about not being conformed to this world and being transformed by the renewing of our mind. When Paul prayed, this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. That prayer, I think, is answered in part in the Sermon on the Mount. It gives us something of the sum and the substance of what it is to follow Christ. Now, if you've got your Bibles and you're turning with me to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, there's a few things I want to say about the preface uh, uh, to the sermon. The situation that Jesus is in when he gives this sermon, it's his first public designated sermon. He has been teaching and he has been healing, but this is the first time we sort of have It gathered together that Matthew gives us. And Matthew is built on five sermons. Uh, Sermon on the Mount is the first. The Sermon on the End of the World is the last. But notice how Matthew sets the context for the Sermon on the Mount. He quotes from Isaiah in the 15th verse of chapter 4. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Galilees. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. That darkness that Isaiah refers to is a prompt is a stimulation, is a catalyst for the teaching that Jesus is about to do. And I guess I want to think in terms of post-Galilee darkness, the kind of darkness that we live with today. Now, we live, what scholars are telling us, is in a cross-pressured situation. We are suspended between the malaise of imminence, and the memory of transcendence. Now, what they mean by this is we've kind of, we've oftentimes, to put it kind of uh, maybe too graphically, we've lived uh, on a first floor and a second floor. We've believed in transcendence. We've believed in the other. We've believed in God. Well, increasingly in the secular age, There is no transcendence. Now, of course, at the Advent, there always is. But at the university, not necessarily so. At the Advent, always. But uh, at the office, not necessarily so. 
And life becomes framed by imminence, by the immediate. Our view of the person, of society, of human flourishing, of time, like the person. Charles Taylor, in his book, The Secular Age, talks about the person as being a buffered self. In other words, in the past, the person was porous. The person was open. There was stimuli and reaction and catalysts that came from God. And there was an openness to... The the self wasn't the be-all and end-all as it is today. And now we live as sort of isolated individuals that... It's every right belongs to us to determine, to determine what is real. Justice Anthony Kennedy, in kind of a famous quote that says a lot about our culture, says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. He's defining liberty as your right to define the meaning of existence and the meaning of life. That is new. That is a new thought. Now, you've grown up with it, so it may not strike you as new at all. That liberty is defined in terms of your personal right to define your existence, your meaning, your purpose. But that's just flat wrong. You realize what life is like if everybody determines what is right and wrong? What is good and what is bad? What is true and what is false? You lose all that mooring, all that substantive anchorage in what is real. And you become the locus of authority, the self-actualizing, self-authenticating, self-defining being. And that's a dangerous place to be. And what's more, we put burdens on, I think, our young people because we're basically teaching them, you got to determine. You have to define your ability to articulate meaning is your responsibility. And in the past, I think our country was founded on the, on the notion that you've been given a lot. You've been given meaning. You've been given structure. You've been given law. You've been given a sense of truth. Now we've got to scramble to try to articulate it, create it, make sense out of it. Charles Taylor talks about this kind of supernova, a burst of stars, of of meanings. And he talks about it in terms of a galloping pluralism. Now, I would like nothing better than for that not to feel like a philosophical term to you galloping pluralism. But the notion here is that we are flooded with authorities, with convictions, with ideologies, with orientations, with perspectives of what life is. 
And my reaction to the galloping pluralism is, one, I want to say that the word of God is adequate to meet that galloping pluralism. In fact, I, I kind of liken the galloping pluralism to the, the four horses of the apocalypse. It's one of those horses. Um, and that we're, it's like a stampede of ideologies, a stampede of perspectives, a stampede of, per, of, of orientations. But the word of God can keep up. God has spoken, speaks into those pluralisms, a definitive, definable truth. We could spend some time on that, but uh, of why I think the, the word of God is so valuable for that. But it doesn't take away, living in the kind of secular age that we live in, doesn't take away from the mission that we have to proclaim Jesus Christ, to admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is a model for speaking into that reality. Chapter 5 and verse 1, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And the disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I find this a very comforting preface to the sermon. There's no panic because of the Galilee darkness. There is no uh, fear, although John the Baptist has just been killed. There is a calmness about Jesus. You know how we always remark when we hear the air traffic controller on one of these tapes of uh, an accident or a near miss or something like that, how calm they are? And the newscaster always remarks about how calm they are, how professional they are, the pilot talking to the tower, and there's no e even quivering in the voice. I don't know how they do that, but there's no quivering in the voice even though what they're describing is very urgent and intense. Well, I see Jesus as a model here. It's a model that's replicated in the upper room, too. Um, the fact that Jesus is just so calm in that context. And it's, it's modeled, too, in the breakfast on the beach in John 21 when Jesus is talking to Peter. Uh, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? There's a calmness here. You know, how agitated and how animated can a person be seated? I'm being a lot more agitated and animated just trying to keep your attention now. But Jesus is seated with his disciples and calmly talking. Um, and I find, that, uh, I find that as a message to us that uh, there ought to be a calmness about us, even in the midst of the galloping pluralisms, a kind of quiet assurance, a definite conviction I don't think we need to be fearful. We certainly don't need to be angry. The culture is changing. So then how in charity and how in grace and how in love do we speak into that culture with the kind of confidence and assurance that I think Jesus would have us have?
there's another uh, connection that I want to make that, uh, and I'm not going to talk too much at length about the sermon itself. I'll, I'll do that some, uh, next week. Uh, but there's another passage of Scripture I connect this with in my mind. Uh, you know, on the pulpit, in the nave, there are early church fathers carved in the pulpit. Well, what I'm going to about to do is something that the early church fathers would do. We tend not to as biblical people today, scholars today. Um, but the last disciple named before the Sermon on the Mount is John. And I wonder if later in life, John didn't reflect back and connect two visions, or a vision and his experience in the Sermon on the Mount, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we have a description. So if you've got your Bibles, will you turn there with me? In Revelation chapter 5, you have a vision of, that John has. So John, who was experienced the Sermon on the Mount, was there on the hillside. Some of you have been to... Uh, that area on the Sea of Galilee, in Capernaum, you've, you've, you've witnessed sort of the geography of that scene. But John's vision takes place uh, on Patmos when he sees a vision of the Lord. And I just connect these two uh, the way Athanasius would or the way Augustine would. Verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And the scroll represents the revelation of God, bringing to a culmination and a climax all that God has for salvation history. That's what the scroll represents here. So a kind of continuation from the very ethical character orientation of the Sermon on the Mount to the very eschatological, bringing it all to an end, vision here that's described in Revelation 5, but no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside, and I wept. I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. John's weeping. Weeping over the possibility that all that God had done will not be brought to a culmination, will not be brought to a conclusion but there was no one there to bring it to a finality. I wept and wept. Who was worthy to open the scroll? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Now, why I bring this out is a, theologian, a philosopher that you would have thought that we would have forgotten about has increasingly become more and more important in the 21st century. Frederick Nietzsche the philosopher of the death of God and the philosopher of uh, nihilistic thinking, that there is nothing. Well, Nietzsche latched onto this particular experience, as well as one of his uh, protégés, D.H. Lawrence, that there is nothing to weep over. John is foolish in his weeping. Because there's nothing there. There is no purpose. 
that Christianity was an invention for weak-souled people to give them something to live for because they could not face the reality and the pessimism that there's nothing there. Now, what's amazing, and I'll talk about this in the weeks to come, of how naturally that has sewn into the fabric of today's culture, where people just easily talk about, well, of course, there is nothing else. Death ends all. And that has just become part and parcel. So Nietzsche just rails here. He says, you know, uh, he uh, equates the animal world and the lion killing the lamb. There is nothing to be upset about. That's just the natural order of things. For the strong man to exploit the weak, there's nothing wrong with that. And therefore, the only thing to live for from Nietzsche's standpoint is the will to power. There's only two types of people, the exploiter and the exploited. And which do you want to be? Now, that gets played out in such a variety of ways in our modern culture that most of the time look very nice. Don't look mean. Don't look evil. But Nietzsche says there is no point to weep. And John is told, do not weep because, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had, and it goes on to describe this slain lamb that is all-powerful. Well, I wonder if John did not connect that opening message of the Sermon on the Mount with now this vision of the lion, lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, opening the scrolls. And so you've got this continuum from the ethics to the eschaton, and John was present to it all, just as every believer ought to be present to it all. You do realize, don't you, that this is a time for us to have to think deeply about the meaning of our faith and be able to articulate. The culture is saying it all depends on your articulation, and that's not true for us because we receive it. We don't invent it. We're not creating it, but we're certainly trying to understand it and grasp it and embody it. So we've just done something that I think the early church fathers would have connected, and they would have kind of been pleased with. I hope you're pleased with it. All the Beatitudes. On your outline, it's B. um, Eight fundamental convictions of the soul. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From a secular standpoint, what's wrong with that sentence? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, first of all, would you use the word blessed in the secular age? I don't think so. What word would you use? Happy. Poor in spirit? No, you wouldn't use that expression. You might use blessed is the person, or happy is the person who believes in herself. 
for they will achieve their goals. You see, that could be, that, that could fly under the radar of the secular age. Happy is the person who believes in herself because she can achieve her goals. That's very different, isn't it? Blessed. Blessed implies a kind of trans, a transcendent sense, something that's received, and something for us that would orient ourselves to, to God being the blesser. And poor in spirit, a way of looking at the individual that uh, would speak of that person's dependency. Well, that's not a popular notion in the secular age, of defining yourself in terms of dependency. You define yourself in terms of your independence, your self-actualization, your self-assertion. And the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean in the secular age? Wouldn't we have to translate that in terms of success, or achievement, or goals? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One way to look at these uh, eight Beatitudes is that they're not a means of grace by which we achieve some kind of relationship with God, they're a state of grace. Blessed by God, this is how we see ourselves, as poor in spirit, utterly, completely, in every way, dependent upon the grace of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You really do have a grasp of how sinful you are. And the older and the more mature you get, it seems that the more we're aware of our own sinfulness and how much we need to be saved by God's, uh, by that fountain filled with blood poured from Emmanuel's veins as we sang. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What a phenomenal counterintuitive countercultural statement that the meek will inherit the earth, that the new heaven and the new earth, this transcendent reality is going to come to bear upon those who have submitted to, surrendered to the will of God. You see how radical these, uh, these aspects of uh, the Beatitudes are in relationship to thinking in terms of our present culture even more so maybe than when Jesus first gave them. Because there the life was structured by the law, by the temple, by an organization that uh, really God had helped set up in order to show them the need for grace. Um, number two on your outline, the quest for meaning has eclipsed the quest for salvation. Uh, with this I'll close and... Maybe open it up for questions if that's desired. The quest for meaning has eclipsed the quest for salvation. Again, I think you can readily acknowledge this from your own personal experience. People are not today questing for salvation. They're questing for meaning. We have described here at the Advent many times at, uh, Luther, Martin Luther's crisis of faith. 
that was not a crisis of meaning. Luther was completely assured of meaning, completely assured of transcendence, completely understanding that there is righteousness and unrighteousness, and he's grappling with the fact that he does not measure up. And the sacraments only condemn him because he feels that. That's, that crisis of faith for him is embedded in a reality of meaning. But today, we don't have that quest for salvation. We have a quest for meaning, and the onus has been put on the individual to invent ways of looking at meaning that is self-satisfying, self-actualizing and self-satisfying. This is what Charles Taylor says about this reading at this point. is probably not a good idea. But to see the contrast, think of Luther in his intense anguish and distress before his liberating moment of insight about salvation through faith, his sense of inescapable condemnation, irretrievable, damning himself through the very instruments of salvation, the sacraments. However, one might want to describe this, it's not a crisis of meaning. The term would have no sense to Luther The meaning of life was all too unquestionable for this Augustan monk as it was for his whole age. So then how do we address the fact that it's a quest for meaning rather than a quest for salvation? And this is why the totality of the biblical revelation, beginning with the fact that the Lord has created and the Lord has redeemed, going back to sort of the wholeness of the revelation scope is so important today for structuring, for understanding that there has been a meaning that's been given and that we receive. See, Luther had to come to the place of what he describes as passive righteousness. He hasn't earned the righteousness. God gave him the righteousness. It's imputed to him. It's given to him. Now, we have to come to the place in our culture of understanding that meaning has been given. It's received. Just like passive righteousness, there's passive meaning. We don't invent the meaning. It's received by us, and that's a grace. So you cannot even begin to really think in terms of salvation until you have realized that God, by his grace, has given you a framework and that there is a transcendent frame around life. And it's not just in the moment. And it's not just left to you. And so this, it's not that the message changes. It's that we understand what all needs to be said in the context of encouraging people toward salvation and toward Christ. And I believe that the Sermon on the Mount will help us do that. Well, uh, we what time does this usually end? I sit there with you, and I don't pay too much attention to the clock, and when Andrew's done, we're over. Ten till. Okay, we got just a few minutes. Does anybody want to stand and ask a question? We don't have David Tanner here with the microphone. Have I said anything that's confusing? Yes.
course, is the fact that God has spoken. The medium through which God spoke, the human beings, and it has all of the variety and all of the kind of interesting uh, reflection and diversity of that in God's holy word, but he has spoken. And all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for our correction and for training in righteousness. And that's what we're dependent on. And that's what it is in part to be poor in spirit, is to actually acknowledge I am dependent upon God to speak and not myself to invent. And I actually, I think that's refreshing myself, um, that the onus of articulation does not lie upon me. The understanding is something that God gives to us. And I'd like, to give, I'd like us to give ourselves to that uh, with a kind of abandonment, a kind of focus, a kind of concern um, that isn't limited to the biblical scholar or to the pastor, but is shared by all of us in the priesthood of all believers, which we firmly believe in. Any comment? Two things there. One, I hope we got the message that we don't need to be afraid. We can be calm. There's a sense of peace. The Lord is the Lord of peace. He's the Prince of peace. And I think the only good work we're going to do is when that sense of calmness and peace is exuded around us and in us and through us. Uh, the second thing is there's a long history to this. Um, it kind of broke apart. And, you know, it was interesting because evangelical um, Anglicans uh, are usually criticized for focusing too much on sex, like this morning, the clarity of it all. Um, great sermon. Uh, but it really was the 60s and the sexual revolution that provided the fuel for what energized the philosophy and the ideology. The ideology has been there for a long time, but the sexual revolution, the breakdown in terms of uh, a covenantal understanding of life, I think was a strategic point. Uh, but it has been building for a long time. Uh, and Charles Taylor's book is excellent. It's 700 pages, uh, and most of it is about how we got to where we are today. Um, but you can really live into the present with the transcendent gospel without having to understand all of the reasons of how we got there in this galloping pluralism. Well, it's 10-2. Can I close us with prayer? Lord God, thank you for my sisters and brothers in Christ. Please bless them and give them your insights into your word and into the life that you have called them to live, that you might be glorified. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.